Welcome to Marin Costello Radio, where we have intentional conversations with impactful people. Your weekly dose of motivation, inspiration, and entrepreneurship. Join me as we explore the ins and outs of building and running a business, interview leaders across all industries, and find the common denominator beneath it all. Welcome to Marin Costello Radio. Folks, we have such an exciting guest to share with you today. Dr. James Simmons is a board-certified acute care nurse practitioner, a frontline healthcare provider during the COVID-19 pandemic, and a passionate on-air medical contributor. What's more, Dr. James is also the brains and heart behind the online community, Ask the NP, everything you're too scared to ask your MD, brilliant. Dr. James continues to emerge as one of the most sought after voices at the intersection of the LGBTQ plus and black communities. As seen and heard on NBC, Fox, CBS, ABC, and our very own Dash Radio, his combination of extensive multimedia experience and more than 11 years of hospital-based critical care practice make Dr. James a trusted source for real, relatable, and reliable health information. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. James Simmons. Wow, that look at that introduction. That's fantastic. Thank you. Oh my gosh, it's all you. I'm just here to celebrate the person that you are. <laughs> oh my goodness, um, wow. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I really, really, really appreciate it so much. How may we refer to you? James, Dr. James, Dr. Simmons, all the above? My full birth name, which was Dr. James <laughs> Quincy. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, James, hey, you is fine. I actually uh, had a, uh, a, a, there's a media outlet that I do a lot of health work with uh, weekly, a couple times a week. And earlier, earlier today, one of them called me Jimmy. <laughs> so, all right, great. Sure, Jimmy works, whatever, whatever you need. So no, James is fine. Absolutely. James is a, is a family name on my dad's side. Um, my uncle, my grandfather, like so many people in my family have the name James. So, and also one of my dearest friends. So I knew we Excellent. would, we would get along it, the second that I, that we were introduced. Absolutely. Um, James is interestingly, I'm the sixth James as far back as my family can go to slavery. There has been a James on that, wow. on my dad's side of the family. And so the, this story is, I know I'm totally throwing you off Marin, but this story is really funny and interesting. There's uh, my uncle, whose name is James, had six girls. And so I'm oh, like the youngest oh of gosh. this generation. And when they found out I was going to be a boy, they were like, we have to name him James because we got to have a James in this generation because Uncle James had six girls. So that's how I ended <laughs> up with the family name of James as well. That's how it goes, right? My dad, yeah. uh, my dad is one of three boys and he had two girls. So mm -hmm. just kind of, you know, they are blessed and cursed as such. <laughs> um, so one of the questions that we like to ask on the show, because we like to kind of see how the person has emerged throughout their life and also see how, as my dear friend Ripley Raider says, we all kind of come out already cooked. So what is, what was little James like? Oh man, what a fantastic question. Uh, little James, so I, I have to go by, of course, memories that I have, but then also I just recently finally got a chance to go back home. I grew up in Nebraska and I live in Los Angeles now. And so I got to go back home post pandemic, slightly post pandemic and see my folks for like the first time in a year and a half. And I, I moved my mom and stepdad into a new place and we were going through family pictures. And, you know, I was looking at all of these pictures from when I was a kid and um, I was, I think I was really happy up until, uh, you know, junior high when we all sort of get unhappy, but there were, <laughs> 
there were all these great pictures. I'm smiling, I'm having a blast, I'm like laughing. And I, for the most part, you know, my siblings would tell you otherwise that our childhood was not super great, but I remember having a super fun uh, childhood, enjoying it, not realizing, you know, we were poor as dirt and not really realizing that we were poor as dirt, like just super enjoying um, life. And I, I think that to that point, we're, we're all a little bit cooked when we come out. I, I do think, I tend to be that person anyway. I mean, I, I can be very serious and, and, you know, my husband would tell you sometimes I can be a little too sharp with my tongue sometimes, but generally I sort of default to this like happy-go-lucky, let's give everyone a hug before the pandemic, let's give everyone a hug and, you know, <laughs> like have fun kind of person. And I think up until I realized that I was gay, and sort of what that meant and how that made me different. I do remember little James being a super happy kid. I love that. So if you don't mind me asking, what was that aha moment for you and how did it shape you moving forward? Yeah, you know, it was, it, it, it's interesting. So, uh, you know, I, I sort of now kind of identify as queer. I think queer is a little bit closer um, ultimately, but we'll, we'll go with gay for conversation's sake. The, you know, I'm, I'm biracial, so my dad is black, my mom is white. I grew up in Nebraska in the 80s and 90s. Uh, I was a really skinny kid and then turned into a chubby teenager. And so I'm biracial. I'm in Nebraska in the 80s and 90s. I realize I'm gay and I'm fat. I, I mean, it just like completely threw my world. You know, if there was one, something that's, that the universe could throw at you, the universe decided to throw even more at me. And and it was really hard, especially having this realization um, so early. You know, I told my mom that I thought I was gay when I was 12. And wow. she, my, my mom, who is a white woman who at that time was divorced and was raising three little black kids in a predominantly black neighborhood, oftentimes she would be one of the only white people I would see like for a week at a time. And so she's already having these difficult circumstances. And then, you know, here comes her middle child, 12 year old throws the I'm gay mom at her. And she handled it really well. She was like, you know, lots of people go through phases at this age, your hormones are a little bit crazy. Why don't we check in in about a year and see where you land? And that that was a tough year in general because right, my hormones are going crazy, right? And I'm, you know, all of these things and there's hair where there wasn't hair and like all of this stuff. And, and a year later we checked in and I was like, oh yeah, mom, definitely, definitely gay. What are we gonna do about this? And uh, it, was, it was a lot to, to sort of process with all of the other intersections, right? That's, we didn't have that word then, but now we call it intersectionality, right? And, and having all of those and trying to process through all those things at age 12 and 13 was, it was a lot. I find that to be a very thoughtful response from your mom. Do you find that that response was, I mean, that to me is just so intuitive and thoughtful because it's like, I accept you either way, but let me give you the space to really navigate it. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's so beautiful. It, isn't it beautiful? And at the time, my mom was transitioning from becoming a nurse into what the United Methodist Church calls a church and community worker. So essentially it's like what we think of as church missionaries, but here in the United States. When you do that, you sort of take the, it's not a vow, it's not Catholicism, but it's sort of like a vow of poverty to live in the community that you're serving. And so, you know, 
I, I think her being such a woman of faith and how, you know, even to this day, the United Methodist Church is sort of accepting of, of LGBTQ folks, but definitely does not endorse LGBTQ folks necessarily remaining in the pulpit um, openly. And so her being such a strong person of faith to have that type of response, um, even then, and this was 1989 or something, 90, uh, was, was really tremendous. And I, I was thankful for it then, even though I probably couldn't put it into words, but as I you know, have grown into adulthood, I am tremendously thankful for her response, as well as you know, so many of my peers, um, black, brown, queer, gay, trans, otherwise, were would have those conversations with their parents, and then they were put out in the streets exactly. at age twelve or thirteen. And so, for me to know that I, I was lucky enough to have a parent who was like, "No, no, I got you. Like, let's figure this out." But you know, I'm not kicking you out or anything. I mean, that's that's it, it categorically changed my life without it. Oh, I'm sure. So you and I, when we had our, um, our meet cute, so to speak, um, you mentioned, we talked about your, your spiritual path, your relationship with spirituality and the church. And I would love for you to share that because it was really moving to hear that from you, um, initially. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, my mom was, a, so I was essentially a pastor's kid, right? A PK. She, she moved on from being a church and community worker after several years into the pulpit and became a pastor. Um, so, but I, I grew up in the United Methodist Church. Even before she went that route, um, we were already going to church um, pretty consistently. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. Some of my best memories of my childhood and of my youth were involved in the church, particularly the United Methodist Church. And even towards the end of high school, I was the uh, vice president of all of the youth of the United Methodist Church. I was the president of the state of Nebraska and of the South Central jurisdiction. So this little 11 state conglomerate of all of the youth, they were sending me to Brazil to represent the United Methodist Church from the United States. I spoke at Congress on behalf of the United Methodist Church at age 17. Like I was doing all of these things involved in the United Methodist Church and I loved it. And I I thought I had a calling to go into the pulpit myself and to become a, a minister, to become a pastor. And there was a, a, a ruling that happened. The United Methodist Church had something called the Book of Discipline. And in the Book of Discipline, it basically says, uh, we welcome LGBTQ folks, but you cannot be self-avowed or practicing if you want to become a minister. So you can be gay, you just can't tell anybody and you can't have sex. Well, in 1996, as I'm graduating high school and thinking that I might want to go into divinity schools and become a pastor, this ruling comes down that they, they, they reaffirm this message in the book of discipline and they're not going to change it. So essentially my church is saying, well, you can be gay, James, but you can't become a minister. And at that moment, I was like, I'm out. I'm done. I, 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 can't, I can't be a part of an organization that won't fully support me even though I've given so much to this organization and they've given so much to me. And at age 18, I wasn't ready to have that, like, do I stay inside the organization and fight conversation? It was, it was more about self-protection. It was more about doing what I needed to do to take care of myself. So I left the church and I left formal religion and I don't regret it at all. In fact, I think it helped me to sort of guide into a more personal spiritual journey with, um, you know, the connectedness of 
of all living creatures in the universe is a little bit more how I like to think about it rather than there's one solo entity. Um, so if we use the word God as sort of that connectedness, I think it's really, really important to have that. It's, it's part of that spirituality and understanding that is, you know, fast forward, part of what helped me get through the first massive wave of COVID that was here in California and I'm literally going to work and people are dying literally left and right, like around me, people are dying. And, and it was so, so overwhelming, but my spirituality and going back to that was really something that kind of helped me get through with at least the amount of PTSD that I have now, which could have been a lot worse oh had I not gosh. had that spirituality, you know? Totally. I think our journeys are similar. I grew up in the Catholic church and, um, I didn't really understand what a connection with God meant until after high school, after college, into my adult life. I ended up going to a non-denominational Christian church per the request of one of my dear girlfriends. And I went to the church and there was just this feeling that came over me. And I was like, oh, it's the feeling. The feeling is the godliness. It's the connectedness. It's the spirituality. And that kind of catapulted my healing journey. So on paper, you know, I've you know, done, you know, completed a few sacraments and yes, I'm Catholic, but my, but my practice similar to you is, is much more in just the day-to-day -day practice of being grateful, being a good person, acknowledging the connectedness, um, and just reminding myself over and over that we are all one and that the answer to everything is pretty much love. If you break it down to, it, you know, the smallest really levels. Yeah. It really is. Right. All we need is love. Isn't, isn't that a Beatles song? Mm -hmm. somebody's song but I, I think about even just in music in general like almost every song you hear is about some sort of love whether it's romantic love or friendship love or self-love or all of those things and I, I will say that I do miss the structure that organized religion provided in terms of knowing that that was a safe space and knowing that that was a place to go like you could go to organized religion facilities literally or whatever and talk about your experience with the interconnectedness of the world, if you want to call that God. And that was really, really great. What I just have a hard time still getting behind is, and this is someone who is very well educated on the Bible, but literally these, these doctrines that are, were probably more like stories uh, and it, to sort of lead people in that right direction, right? Like, let's tell a story about this, about why it's really important to be a good person. And connect with your community and know that you are part of a greater whole and all these different things. Well, if we get down to the brass tacks of these things that happened two, 3,000 years ago, they may not apply today, um, but people still try to make those rules work. And that's something that it just doesn't necessarily drive with me, but I don't let it affect my personal spiritual journey. Totally. I find that oftentimes people, because the Bible is a really powerful tool, right? But I find that oftentimes it's used as like in a black or white sense when it's like, mm -hmm. Ooh, that's, that's bringing you away from God. Actually mm -hmm. you're, you know, using it as a tool to find your kindness, find your joy, find your love, find your compassion, find your understanding. That's what it's meant to do. It's meant to bring us together, not separate us. 100%. 100%. Yeah. So you grew up in Nebraska. What brought you to Los Angeles? Love. Speaking of, <laughs> I love, look at that transition. <laughs> I know you better make that transition, Mary. That's awesome. I love it. Uh, and you didn't even know you were doing it. Now, love, love brought me to Los Angeles. I, I grew up in Nebraska. I did my undergraduate work at Drake university in Des Moines. I stayed in Des Moines for a year afterwards. And I still sort of had this, like, wait a minute, 
I'm gay and black and fat in Des Moines, Iowa in the 90s. Like, what am I doing here? I got to get out. <laughs> so off I went to Chicago. I was either going to New York or San Francisco, but then my mom had some really significant health issues. So I'm like, well, I better stay close enough in Chicago to Omaha, for those listening who don't know, are close enough driving distance, right? So I could drive home. So I went to Chicago, knew some folks, ended up in Chicago for 14 years where I made this massive jump into corporate America and it was fantastic. And then I left corporate America to come into nursing. Um, And then I, throughout all of this, I've I've been an athlete almost all of my life. And I was playing in these sort of like pro-am-ish kind of basketball tournaments. And there was one particular tournament that we went to in Las Vegas and I was there with my best friend and we won that tournament. And so my teammates and I and my best friend, we were out partying hard on a Saturday, on a Sunday night. Well, there were other sports there as a part of this larger tournament. And one of the sports was softball. Well, my now husband's softball team did horribly. So they were also out partying on Sunday because they did really bad, right? They wanted to drink (laughs) away their sorrows and we were celebrating and we happened to all end up at the same club at 2 a.m. in Vegas. And, you know, you can imagine what may or may not have happened that evening and what we like to say in a very, very cheeky manner is that what happens in Vegas doesn't always stay there because here we are almost nine years later. Congratulations. Oh, years. Oh, my God. (laughs) <laughs> I love yeah, that. Isn't, that, isn't that wild? It was just the craziest thing. So we did long distance for about 18 months while I finished up some grad school work in Chicago. Um, and then, you know, I, I really love Chicago. It, it's, it's, I still consider it home. I still have tons of friends there. We visit as often as we can, but also uh, the months of January, February, and March in Chicago and I do not get along whatsoever. Um, and so when Chris said, hey, babes, like, should I move to Chicago or do you want to move to LA? I was like, oh, no, no. (laughs) I love that. So that was nine years ago that you moved to LA or Uh, seven years? Well, I moved to, yeah, it was seven years in May. Seven years. Wow. I love it. Your journey to Chicago was similar to my journey to LA because I moved down to LA and was there for 14 years and I just, and we just missed each other. I just moved to to Tampa in in March. Um, Yeah. Um, not for love, but <laughs> loving myself say, love for self love. Sure. Do you, and yeah. are you liking Tampa? Like, was this, I like, love it. Honestly, I feel like Tampa. So geographically it's set up very similarly to Los Angeles and that it's a driving city. You know, there's different communities that are adjacent to each other, but they're unique enough to where if you need a little bit of, uh, you know, any sort of flavor, you can go into any of the, of the communities and kind of get that. Yeah. Um, when I came here close to 10 years ago, it wasn't as diverse. So that was, a, mm. you know, being a California kid coming from a multi-racial background myself and then growing up in the Bay Area and then living in Los Angeles for 14 years. I was like, I don't want to live in Pleasantville. But luckily when I came here, I noticed that it had changed a lot and it was this beautiful like melting pot. I, I liken it to like a, a younger, a younger, more more grounded Los Angeles. And I only say grounded, not because there isn't groundedness in Los Angeles, but I found at least for myself and my community that it took a little bit of time to get your footing when you go to LA. I feel like there's this element of like still Southern hospitality where people are just so, you know, openly generous and and communicative 
when you first meet them. And, you know, I love, I love Los Angeles so much. I thought I was going to be a lifer, but this is just, you know, the next chapter and I'll still come back to visit all the time. I love that. And I love that we're, we're in a place where we're able to sort of do those things and, and be open to that, right. Be open to, you know, it, it does remind me sort of Marin that like I had said, cause I was kind of already thinking about what my transition out of Chicago was going to look like. And the thing I was telling the universe was that I will live anywhere. And I was thinking like Sydney, Barcelona, like Buenos Aires, like I was look, like everywhere. San Francisco, New York, like the original plan, all of these things. But I was like, the one place I will never live is at Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that funny? And I just, cause I had just had some really poor experiences here in traveling. And I think, it, you know, I liken it to pick any city. And if you go to the only touristy parts or your only exposure, I mean, a lot of this was in my twenties and early thirties, right? So a lot of my exposure was like Saturday night at 1 a.m. in the hot spot. In Hollywood, okay. yeah. In Hollywood or West Hollywood, right? And if that's your only exposure to a city, then you, of course, you're not going to like it, right? So I was like, well, I'm not going to L.A. because it's trash. And, you know, it, I thought everyone in L.A. was just like they were standing in line to get into a club at 1 a.m. in West Hollywood. Obviously, very much not the case. Um, and I, I have found people here, and I'm sure you did as well, um, warmer and and much more generous and much more sort of real depending on what circles you're in much more real than i had ever anticipated uh, and i i think it's fantastic so i'm really elated that you're having a, a similar experience in tampa totally and i also think that you know the little that you know we know of each, of each other dr james i feel like you and i could be placed in any environment and come out with friends or you know we just know how to talk to people and relate to people and you know, we just love people. Yeah. Um, so at what point did you shift from corporate America to nursing? Mm. Oh man, this, this journey is something else. And I, I don't- I'm like, when does your book come out? Can I get a signed copy? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, you're great. Okay, you, speaking of manifesting things in the universe, you're like the fourth person who said in the last month, like wh when are you writing a book? So I think I- <clears throat> I might know what my plans might need to be for the next year. Uh, Passion although, project. You know, I, I gotta say, yes. Although I, you know, I just finished a dissertation last year in the middle of a pandemic. And so after writing a 119 page dissertation, there's part of me that I was like, no, I, I think that's why I've had this like mental block on a book. I'm like, oh my God, I just wrote this dissertation. Like I can't write a book, um, I'm getting us off track. So the, you know, I moved to, I told you I left Des Moines and I was like, this is crazy. I got to get out of here. Well, I moved to Chicago in um, May of 2001 and didn't have a job until I started a job on Monday, September 3rd, 2001. And then a week later, if you do the math, you can understand what happened. And I started that job at a dot-com. And so after 9-11, uh, when the dot-com markets were crashing and, and it was crazy, the, you know, I thought I was going to lose my job. And we ended up being one of the very few dot-coms in Chicago that had all this venture capital funding and whatever that managed to stay afloat. And I, they, that company still exists. I still know some people who still work there, however many years later, and I'm tremendously thankful for them. And it sort of started me on this path of like, wow, I have a journalism and mass communications degree, but I never thought of this like internal communications, corporate world sort of thing. And that turned into a couple of jobs at nonprofits and 
uh, eventually leading to PepsiCo. Um, and I specifically worked on the Gatorade, Tropicana, and Quaker Oats brands of PepsiCo, and then some internal communications as well. And it was great. They were fast tracking me. Like I was 28 years old or whatever, and I was making six figures and you know, have, starting to get titles and all these things. And this was amazing and wonderful and yay, corporate America, except I had this little voice in the back of my head that was like, I'm not sure I wanna be in corporate America. And two, don't forget, dude, remember you wanna be a nurse. And that little voice had been inside of me as long as I could remember. But wow. when you're the slightly effeminate, everybody knows you're gay, but you're not saying it, fat biracial kid in Nebraska in the 80s, you're not running around telling everybody that you want to be a nurse, right? Like it's just <laughs> out of a spirit of self-preservation. There's a time and a place. Yeah, right. You're not telling the kids in the neighborhood who are already beating you up that you want to want to be a nurse, right? Like that just wasn't happening because it was, you know, so 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 different. Like our societal right. expectations of, of men and what's appropriate, all those things were so different then. So uh, but I finally said, all right, I got to do this, man. I, I can't be the person who is, you know, 97 years old on my deathbed and looking back and being like, what if? So even though I had this great job and I, I PepsiCo is a fantastic, in terms of corporate responsibility and all those different things, like they're a really, really great company, no shade to them whatsoever. But for me, I'm like, I got to do this. So right. I left, I think at age 30, finally, and went into a program where they teach you how to be a nurse you work as an RN, a nurse at the bedside, while you then are also getting your graduate degree and becoming a nurse practitioner. Um, and so I blew up the career at age 30, <laughs> and, uh, 29, I think, and was like, I'm going back to school. And the, the guy I was dating at the time was like, sure, this sounds like a fantastic plan, you crazy. <laughs> um, so I went from making six figures to living on student loans um, for this program, but I, it is the smartest thing I ever did. I am so glad that I took that risk and took that chance when I was young and um, didn't have a ton of you know, financial responsibilities at the time. And, and it's been the best, at least career decision I've ever made. That's awesome. That is awesome. So you become a nurse. And then at what point do you start creating this brand? Because you have your full-time job and you are, you know, your own being, and then you have this amazing brand that you've created as well to kind of educate the public and show perhaps a different side to the medical industry and create a safe space. I mean, you were speaking earlier about, you know, how the church provided that safe space for you. It's interesting because I, from the outsider's perspective, see you creating that type of safe space in the medical community. So at what point did you decide or did it organically turn into a brand? That is the best thing anyone ever said thank you because that's so exactly fun. what I'm trying to do oh my gosh I'm glad that that's translating because you know when you're so close to I mean you get this being as successful as you are when you're so close to something you're not always sure how it's perceived on the outside right totally so thank you uh, that that truly made, interview's done we're good like thank you <laughs> like, thank you guys for tuning in it's been great Dr. James <laughs> we'd like to thank Dash Radio and I'm just kidding <laughs> right, right, yeah yay Dash Radio uh, um, honestly thank you that's that's tremendous that so you know I have the journalism math communications background I did a little bit of radio in Des Moines afterwards and then you know this communications a little bit of PR stuff in corporate America fast forward then I become a nurse practitioner after years of school et cetera et cetera and then like YouTube goes crazy. And so it's like 2013, 2014. And I'm like, okay, all these people are like, you know, jumping off of 
whatever brick walls and breaking their ankles and they're getting millions of views on YouTube. And I'm like, why can't we use this as a medium to like educate people, particularly folks who have really poor access to healthcare or aren't necessarily communicated in a healthcare uh, way that they understand, right? People with lower health literacy, things like that. So I was like, okay, I wanna just talk about medical stuff that most people are scared to talk about and create a safe space for black and brown individuals, uh, individuals across the LGBTQ spectrum, all of us that intersect at all of those places, anyone really, who's like, okay, yeah, like, I think I have chlamydia. What do I do about that? And in a no shame kind of way, in a like, hey, okay, you have chlamydia. Okay, who cares? Like, we can talk about harm reduction things afterwards, but like, let's deal with the chlamydia right now in a no shame, no judgment sort of manner. And I just started, you know, grabbing my phone because phones could barely start to do these videos at that time. And I grabbed my phone and I just started talking into the phone, trying to remember all my old like journalism training, right, from years before. And they, I mean, they, man, they were horrible. They were just awful, awful videos. They were so bad. But then after about a year of practice or so, just throwing these things up on YouTube, I got a little bit better at them. And there were a couple of videos I did that by no... Uh, nothing that I did magical, they just took off. Like, boom, 300,000 views on YouTube. Wow. I mean, one was about green poop. I was <laughs> gonna ask you what's the subject matter. <laughs> um, one was green poop and I, I can't remember what the other, they're still out there. There's a, I had to take a couple of them down because a couple of them were, were a little, uh, you know, I get a little controversy, like controversial. Like when I say everything you're too scared to ask your MD, I, I mean it. So some totally. of them are a little dicey. Um, but so they kind of took off and then, you know, Instagram started doing its thing and Twitter and blah, blah, blah. And I actually started on Twitter first and I would just tweet things about, you know, people's health and whatever. And all of this sort of spiraled and snowballed into this beast of what it is right now, but in a really lovely way, right? Like I, this is exactly what I want to do. And I'm realizing that there's so much power in media and social media in terms of educating people in a way that they can digest, in a way that they can understand and in a way that they have access to, like almost everyone, even my homeless guys in the hospital that I take care of have cell phones. Totally. I can get to these things. And so if I can educate you now about the vaccine or about COVID or about your blood pressure or about sexual health, I, I did a video earlier this week about, you know, ejaculation and prostate health. Like if I can educate you about whatever in 30 seconds on, on your phone, that's, that's better than you getting crap information out there on the internet. I think it's so refreshing and I love, I mean, I have my qualms with the internet, of course, but I think it's such a useful tool. And I find that, um, you know, subject matter, like anything under the healthcare spectrum, um, you know, you're talking about, you know, sexual health and, and, you know, other subject matter that people might not be interested in or might not feel comfortable talking about even like pregnancy everything under the sun like I'm just now learning about my friends who are going through those steps and it's like oh the things that we don't actually talk about so I just so appreciate that safe space that you're creating um thank you thank you and again I am so thank you so much for saying that that's exactly what I'm going for oh man that feels so good that I'm I'm, I'm actually at least directionally correct with that thank you thank you and on Wednesday, August 4th at 1.32 p.m., we, we have peaked, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I'm good. We're 
<laughs> Beat me I up. Say, I also keep it going. Well, you know, we got, I don't want to take away anything going on in the future of this interview, but I got grand plans. Of like, I want this, everyone to have access to this sort of stuff, not even just like on Instagram and Twitter, you know? It's so true. Um, what would your advice be to someone who wants to get into the medical field? Actually twofold, someone that wants to create a community as the community that you've created and someone who wants to get into the medical field. What would your first steps for them be? Well, they're, oh man, that's a kind of a tough question because we're in such a different world. Excuse me right now with all of these things. I, I think I'll, I'll go to nursing sort of first. So if, if you are, first of all, there's still a nursing shortage and a bedside nursing shortage. Um, and and I'll, I'll make that distinction really quick. So all nurse practitioners are nurses, right? We have to become a nurse and RN or registered nurse first. And then you go on to get at least a master's degree. A lot of us have doctorates to become a nurse practitioner, which means I essentially function in the way that you think of a physician functioning. So I diagnose medical conditions, I prescribe interventions and medications to fix those. And nurse practitioners do those things in lots of environments. So uh, mid midwives, women's health clinics, um, uh, your CVS, you know, just regular, uh, your like family practice clinics. I do it as an acute care nurse practitioner. So I take care of like really critically ill patients in the hospital. So there's a big need for all of this, right? Healthcare is like the number one industry that's growing in terms of jobs and, and nursing is a fantastic profession. It's not easy. And one of the biggest things people think is like, oh, I'm gonna just take this little course and become a nurse. Um, and it, it, it doesn't work that way. There's, you know, I had years of prerequisites leading up to when I finally made the jump. And then for me, I did an accelerated program. So it was about 20 months of full-time massive, like 70 hours a week of studying um, to become a nurse, take the test, passed it. And then I started working as a nurse and then had three and a half years of graduate education to become a nurse practitioner. And then an additional two years of education to get my doctorate on top of that. So it is a lot of school. It's not easy. I think it's very worth it. Um, but just know what you're getting into before you you make this jump and and have know that it's a lot of science and that's a good thing. And so you gotta kind of love science and you gotta kind of love people because you're seeing people, and this will be my transition into social media as well. <laughs> you gotta love people because you will often see people at their worst. At their worst, yeah. And that is in the hospital environment you know, they're, most people are in pain. They're really scared. They don't know what's going on. Right. And so you're not, it's not like having dinner parties with people all the time. Like I love people at dinner parties too, but sometimes people in the hospital can be a lot to deal with. Right. Cause they're in pain. They're scared. Their family's freaking out. They're freaking out. Similarly to in media, if you decide that you want to do something as a career in social media or in the media in general, particularly on, I'm finding TikTok to be one of the most problematic places recently. People are really not their best, right? People don't show their shining light um, as much on social media because it's, I think it's easy to hide behind an avatar or, or hide behind, you know, what that means. And then, so people are pretty mean, particularly uh, when it comes, you know, not to get political, but when it comes to political things like, like vaccines, which unfortunately are political or, or even COVID itself, um, you got to have a, a thick skin a little bit to, to say, I, my mission is still to educate people. My mission is still to deliver really quality uh, healthcare information in a fun, engaging sort of way that people want to watch and want to engage with. But also know that there are people who are going to be really, really, really mean to you 
about yeah. it if they disagree. It's it's tough. So kind of combating that, what does your, and this self-care is a buzzword, right? But from a holistic perspective, what does self-care look like for you? And what does it mean for you? And it's not just, you know, a facial or, or your skincare <laughs> regimen, but like holistically, what does your self-care look like so that you can properly show up, you know, wholly for your job and then also in the media space? Uh, I really had to, from a self-care standpoint, really get back to being really hyper-present. Um, there's a lot going on in, in all of our lives right now. And it's, it, most of these, a lot of these things are good, but some of them are really bad. But I've, I've always been such a, a sort of future-oriented person. You know, there are things going on with Ask the NP. There are things going on with Dr. James. There are things going on with just my husband and I that are really exciting and fun and wonderful that are all this potential. And if I keep living there mentally, emotionally, I have come to realize that it really impacts my mental and emotional health in the present time now. Like I can't be too, I need to plan for the future. I need to uh, look, look towards it, you know, be sort of goal oriented a little bit, but if I get too out of the present, it really, really, really throws me off. And I think that, and whether this is a good motivation or not, I don't know, but what I've learned is that the more present focused I am, the better I am at things like media, the better I am at things like interviews. So when KTLA calls and says, you know, those of you listening who don't know, KTLA is a big TV station here in, in Los Angeles. And when they call and say, hey, James, we want to talk about X, Y, and Z. If I haven't taken the time in the in last couple of days to be really present focused and, and see where the world is now, where I am right now, um, I do worse interviews with them. Um, when I, I guest lecture fairly often, and if I'm not being really present just in general in my life, I don't lecture to my baby nurses, as I call them. I don't lecture to my baby nurses as well, right? So I find my anxiety is better. Um, just overall, even weird things, Marin, like I feel like my skin is better. When I'm 100%. Like focused here, I am not as internally so like from a medical standpoint i'm not as inflamed like i'm not as you know i'm not as bloated just all this things and be like okay you can only really live what is going on right now um so for that that for me is really really important the other thing is that i i used to sort of have shame and guilt around things like i told you i've, I've been an athlete my entire life sometimes just going outside and shooting baskets for 30 minutes i i realized when i couldn't do that during the pandemic uh is so tied to how, to my mental health. And I didn't realize how much processing of emotions and processing of the things in my life that were happening when I was doing something like completely removing my conscious thought and just playing basketball in a way that it almost for me is like meditation. And not doing that for more than a year during the pandemic, I was like, wow. When people talk about with meditation or yoga or whatever sort of spiritual practices they have that allow them to sort of stop conscious thought and just let your brain kind of work on some things and work through things, that was ha that happens for me when I play sports because I'm just thinking about playing that sport and that how great I feel afterwards. I 
I know it sounds maybe a little corny, but I was like, man, this is really part of my like self-care. Like I got to go play tennis. I got to go, you know, play a little basketball to clear my brain. And when I came back, I'm able to snap back right into that being present and, and taking care of the things that I need to take care of. So, um, so I offer those two things, find whatever that thing is for you. That is your playing basketball or playing tennis or allowing your conscious brain to just turn off for a while and, and stay as present as you can. Movement meditation through movement is something that I know so well. And I didn't realize that that is the main way that I practice my stillness and meditation is actually through moving and through movement. Um, so I used to go to a bar studio called Embody. Um, the owner is my dear friend, Marnie Alton. She was one of the guests on the show. And we jokingly, while the studio was still open pre-pandemic, we would call it church. Like we would go, you know, I would go at every day essentially. And there was this one particular Saturday morning class where we're like, oh, this is church because, you know, there's That's all these, this beautiful like female collective. We knew each other. It was safe space. We were moving together. We were in this, the workouts were brutal. So we like, there was a camaraderie of like, how the hell are we going to make it through this? Cause this woman right. is so petite and beautiful, but like total spitfire and like would totally kick your butt. Yeah. So you know, when the pandemic happened, I realized how much, I mean, I, and I have a dance background as well, similarly to you having your athletic background. And so being able to move again was such, I mean, I will never take it for granted again, because it was just something that we all need, whatever that looks like. If it's walking, if it's playing basketball, if it's dancing, like we just need that motion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's so important. And it, it does make me think, I have some some people who are, are very, very close to me who um, have allowed me to say the word disabled is fine. I was trying to find a different word for that recently, but also some of my folks, my, my friends and family who are disabled are like, no, no, just say disabled, like we're fine. But some of my friends who are, and family who are disabled have had a really, really hard time making that transition from having been more fully abled before and then their, their self-care through movement was really restricted and then finding different ways. And so you, you bring up like gratefulness and not taking that for granted. And I think that's something that if, if, you know, of the 400 lessons we all learned from this stupid pandemic that's unfortunately ongoing, one of them is that I will absolutely never, ever, 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 ever take my very abled 43 year old body for granted ever again. Like I, it is such a gift and, and something I'm eternally thankful for and uh, just just realizing what it is and and how what a privilege that is to be to be fully able-bodied if the pandemic taught me anything it was that so true so I'm curious what a day in the life of Dr. James Quincy Simmons looks like both from you know a schedule with your job and then also building out your brand what is a day in the life or does it change every day oh Yes, <laughs> is the answer to both of those, both of those questions. You know, you, um, I will tell you that there, there was, you know, really interestingly, and I, I hope this is something that, that everyone listening can, can kind of relate to. Social media and a lot of what you see out there, and when people see me on TV or radio or whatever, it, a lot of it's smoke and mirrors. I have been struggling lately in the last couple of months of figuring out sort of what is what does Ask the NP need to be doing right now as a brand? 
And I think it's really important for people to hear that. Like we see these successes and you know, everyone's like, oh, you're doing this thing with KTLA and there's these potential TV show things down the road and, da, 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 and all this stuff. That's great news, Dr. James. It is great news. Right now I'm floundering. Like, I don't know what the hell to do. So- <laughs> You're I like, just, I'm trying to I stay got... present here, people. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And I got that feedback from someone who was like, you just need to get back to your roots a little bit more. And so I started doing, I did this thing years ago, which is kind of what helped the brand take off in the first place called the daily dose or your daily dose. And I did, I, I got away from it years ago. Cause frankly, even five years ago, doing something daily and posting it on all these different platforms was like two and a half, three hours worth of work. And who has that time for a minute long video, right? Well, now things are so much easier in, in Instagram and TikTok and all these different places to just like throw up a 30 second video. And I'm, I'm so much better at it. I'm so much more comfortable on camera and, and on the microphone. I'm able to, to throw this stuff up there, have it be really good information. And it's in this TikTok world that we live in, no one has attention spans longer than 30 seconds anyway. So they consume it and it's doing really, really well. And it has helped refocus me. It's helped put me back in the present. So I bring all of that up that hopefully people can relate to. Don't, don't worry. Sometimes all this stuff that you see online and all this stuff is just smoke and mirrors because I literally will sit down with my husband and be like, babe, I don't know what to do. Like all of this is crazy. So I'm getting focused and present every morning with committing to doubling down on doing this thing called your daily dose. And I put it out on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and wherever. I'm most active on Instagram, by the way. So your daily dose every morning, whether I, I'm going to the hospital or not. So sometimes that means I wake up at 5 a.m. to put it together. Sometimes that means I wake up at 7 or 8 to put it together. If it's a hospital week, I do the daily dose. Off I go to the hospital. And I do seven days on and then seven days off. I love that. It's tremendous. I think it's the greatest thing. So I'm really, really cognizant of doing the daily dose. And then I put my social media away and I really, you know, obviously focus on my patients while I'm at the hospital. Um, so I get as much done as I can. Most of those days I am able to leave sort of mid afternoon. And then I come home and I usually then it's frantically catching up on emails and media requests and things like that. Definitely a workout, definitely that movement sort of thing. And that workout can look like, you know, my, my husband's boyfriend, I mean, Peloton, <laughs> if I can peel him off of it, I'll jump on the Peloton. We're fortunate enough to have one of those, or I'll do a little yoga in the backyard, or, you know, something like that, but definitely a movement every day. Um, and then my husband and I have been trying really hard in the evenings. You know, he's got a busy corporate job. He works from home, that kind of thing. We've been trying really hard in the evenings to uh, put our phones away a little bit more. Um, and so, because what we were finding is that, oh, let's have this time together. And we're laying on the couch watching a TV show, which is great. And then we're both on our phones at the same time. So we're totally. not really watching the show. We're not really engaging with each other. We're both neither really even sure what we're doing on our phones. We're just like on them, like most of us. So we're rolling through really... TikTok, getting triggered. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Like, oh, I can't believe this. So putting the phone down um, and doing that. And then my husband has completely converted me into a morning person. So we generally bless are, him. I know, and I can't even handle it. But now I, I love <laughs> it. But we we normally are falling asleep by ten or ten thirty because we're up at five thirty or six most days. That's awesome. Generally, what a day looks like. I can't even imagine what yours. I mean, you probably do. You work like twenty three and a half hours a day. Like, 
You have so much going roughly, on. Roughly, roughly. Um, it's one of those things that I'm constantly trying to ask myself and take inventory of what's best for me because you know I've done I've read all the books I've done all the classes of like this is how you structure your morning and this is how your day should look like and it's like well we're all a little different we're all made a little bit different what works for me I ask myself a lot of questions and take inventory daily of what's serving me what's not down to the food that I'm eating, the people that I'm around, the tasks in my business that are making me feel good or bad. Like I try and gamify everything and ask myself questions of like what's serving me and the greater good the best and what's not and what can we do away with. I, I love um, getting rid of excess. I'm like a notorious purger. So in the physical world, in the emotional world, my dear friend and head of operations is ahead of me right now and she's nodding her head. <laughs> Tara's <laughs> like, yep. I this is <laughs> Can you, I, I'm gonna steal your interview for just a second. So for to yeah. someone who has a little bit of a hard time being a purger, what was that like to, have you always been that way? Or did you sort no. of like find a moment where you were like, all right, no. I'm able to figure out how much better I feel when I get rid of this? So little background, my dad's side um, is a Caucasian, we're Caucasian Mutts, but we identify as Irish. My mom's side is Guamanian, so from Guam, also called Chamorro. So my maternal grandparents were, yes, you know, uh, Guam is a territory of the States, but they're immigrants to the mainland from Guam. And so they grew up very, 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 very poor um, and made something of themselves here. Um, and so I remember growing up and things were so treasured, like they were so excited to have things and just really, I think that their, um, concept of abundance manifested in things. So I grew up with a lot of things, whether they meant something or not. And then through the years through, um, and, and this is like, things meaning saving everything, make sure that you save everything and, you know, reuse things and just like hold on to what you have kind of a thing. And through the years after, you know, moving to Los Angeles from Northern California and then moving, you know, four or five times within college and then moving out of, you know, college life and then moving into each respective apartment. I just remember doing that and having all of my things be so cumbersome and feeling the energetic weight of all the stuff. Um, I think the most transformative, I've always been a fairly organized person and I, and I could purge to an extent, but I met my, my dearest, best and dearest friend, Chelsea Lefkin, who's an amazing artist in Los Angeles. I want to say like five, six years ago. And she is a true minimalist. Um, and watching her live her life and, you know, get rid of things and have them, things come back into her life. That was a really beautiful thing to watch. So I'd like to say it came from within me, but it was that really, the catalyst was really watching Chelsea operate in her daily life. And um, it made me realize that it is the things that we do have, it's so important that those items, every single thing brings us joy. So if you have something and you're like, oh, I think, you know, I think I'm going to use this or I think I'm going to wear it try getting rid of it. And if you need it again, you can always buy it. Mm -hmm. But if you don't need it, then that's, you're creating more space for the next thing to come in. And I find that to be true of physical things, emotional things, 
you know, people that come in and out of our lives, the more we're able to let go of, the more we actually welcome back into our lives. It's actually like a reverse psychology of abundance. Um, and so, I mean, you know, the, the famous Marie Kondo methodology of holding something and says, and asking yourself, does this bring me so much joy? Am I so joyful? Does this one item bring me so much joy? And if the, if the answer is like 80%, then it's a no. If it's not a hundred percent or more, then we get rid of it. Yeah. So. <laughs> Cause I thought I you were going to say if it's 80%, yes. No, no. But and I, this is like, go ahead. I look around and I see, I'm like, I mean, we're, we're pretty good. My husband's a lot better than I am. We're pretty good about not having a ton of stuff. In fact, we downsized into this house intentionally, but I still am like, wow, there's a bunch of things that are probably a, even 87 and a half percent. That if I were to hold them and say, does this bring me joy? I'd be like, yeah, 87% of the time it does. But if it's not a hundred percent, I love that. And I'm going to practice that as well as with people, right? My best friend has talked about, she's, she's amazing at this, but um, she just periodically, she needs to clean her closets and cleaning closets can mean people. It can mean emotions. It can mean her actual closets. Like sometimes things just need to be cleaned to create the space that she's looking to have in her life. Um, to receive the things that are coming into her life. And I, I, I love that. And I, she's going to be mad because I probably am not, I'm going to listen to you more than I have to her. <laughs> <laughs> well, going off, going off of closets, I mean, I love, and I'm in fashion, right? So I think that me presenting myself um, to be a representative of the fashion industry is important to me. And I find mm -hmm. I, it's, you know, similarly to, I imagine how you present yourself and how you educate yourself to be in the medical field. Like you always want to be at your best. So when I look at my closet and I, and I clean my closet regularly, um, I, when I, and I always try everything on, it's not conceptual. I don't look at something and go, Oh yeah, I try it on. And I ask myself how I feel. And I, and I ask myself, do I feel like a bazillion doll hairs? Like if I ran into like my dream client or my ex, like would I feel like hot fire in this? And if the answer is no, then we get rid of it. Like, cause I want to feel like amazing no matter what room I step into. Um, and obviously, you know, clothes are just a tool. It, it's all internal, right? It, the, the majority of the work is internal, but, you know, clothes and fashion is a tool to kind of aid in how you present yourself to the world and how you want to show up. So, um, and obviously this is not, I didn't wake up one day and go, I'm gonna get rid of everything. Like this is obviously, you know, many, many years <laughs> down, you know, of work and, and, it, and it continues and there's never, I mean, this is true of life, right? There's never a day that you wake up and go, I figured it out. Like life is figuring it out. It, it is. And I, there's so much to that. I think pressure we put on ourselves to uh, about all of that about, oh, oh, I figured it out. Like, when is that day coming? Right. Or I've the, I've made it thing. Right. And I think that to sort of your earlier, you know, discussions about, you know, I think I felt like maybe I made it when I got, I graduated school and I got my first nurse practitioner job. And then I realized like, I don't know anything, right? That first year of being a nurse practitioner was one of the hardest years of my life. And then, you know, you sort of think, oh, I figured it out. And oh, I got one video that got 357,000 views on YouTube. I have figured it out, right? And then your next 48 videos get like 200 views, right? Just, <laughs> you, you have to enjoy the process of it 
um, in whatever you're doing. And I tend to be a fairly, I think this is why nursing and medicine work so well for me. I tend to be a pretty logical brained. Um, my husband accuses me of never thinking with my emotions, always thinking with my head. Um, <laughs> but, and it works in a lot of uh, situations, but I think that's sometimes what has prevented me from purging the physical things that I need to purge. Because if I can't purge it all at one time, I, I don't like see value in doing it. And so thank you for staying because this is helping me in other parts of my life too. Thank you for saying like, no, it's a process. You're not going to completely clean your physical closet all at one time. Let's just, you know, James set a goal. Try three things on today. See how they make you feel. If I don't feel like a bazillion dollars, then like <laughs> out the window it goes. You know, I like this concept a lot. Thank you. I love it. Well, in true in the true fashion of being present, somehow we blinked and it's been an hour already. I, I have know, enjoyed, <laughs> I've enjoyed having you on the show so much. I truly feel like we have, you know, a friendship brewing for the yes. both of us. I just, you know, I've, I've just adored having you on the show. I'd love for you to tell us where we can find you offline. Yes. Um, at my local bakery. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I am at Ask the NP all over social, um, or and the website's askthenp.com. It is newly launched, by the way, and there's still some bugs in there. So please apologize, you know, my apologies for those. But askthenp.com and ask the NP on social media. I actually do DM with folks a lot because people really do ask the NP wild things. Um, so I always just tell folks, please uh, be patient. Sometimes there are hundreds of DMs. I work through them because I have told you to ask me things and I want to respect that I'm going to try to give you a response. So um, most active on Instagram, Twitter and new this new TikTok thing. I don't know. I'm trying, man. But I feel like I'm I feel like I'm too old. Like for No way. No way. What am I doing on TikTok? I don't know. I mean, I can dance really, really well, but I'm like, I'm not doing a dance video on TikTok. I don't know, but you guys can come tell me what I should do at Ask the NP on TikTok as well. I would like to request a dance video. Thank you. In true <laughs> movement fashion. Yes, yes, that's very, very, very true. All right, I'll give it a try. I'll give it a try. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I just adore you. And I'm so excited to share your story and all of your wisdom with our audience. I really, really appreciate it. it means so much. And this is, this has been an absolute joy, Marin. Thank you so much. You are so welcome. Well, folks, that was so incredible. A huge thank you to Dr. James for coming on the show. Another thank you to our hosts at Dash Radio and our producers at Island City Media Group. If you love the show and want to listen again, you can find each episode on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you in advance for leaving a review so that we can continue to bring you the guests and content that you love. Finally, if you want to connect with me offline, you can find me on Instagram at Marin Costello and Marin Costello Radio. Wishing you all a wonderful weekend. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next week. Won't you allow me before you leave? Let me hold you before you go. Just remember the time we shared, and remember you touched my soul. We don't know where life will take us. I hold my breath and be patient. So won't you love me before you leave Every moment with you Pretty perfect for me And baby you're telling me That we can never be And now I'm like Cool it down, cool it down, take a minute You say you have to go But yesterday your heart was in it, my love Oh, let me say what I need to say Won't you